What was the sexual revolution? And what is the consequences of it? Why are so many people divorced? What is at fault for the breakdown of families? What can conservatives in Europe do to counterbalance the American trends? What should we tell our daughters to minimize this damage? Here to answer these questions, I have with me Stephen Baskerville. He holds a PhD from the London School of Economics. He's a professor at the Collegium Intermarium and serves as president of the think tank Inter-American Institute for Philosophy, Politics and Social Thought. He's a research fellow at the Howard Center for Family, Religion and Society and the Independent Institute. He's recognized as a leading authority on fatherhood, family policy, and sexual politics, and has several published books on these issues. He's also appeared in leading national and international publications as an expert. So thank you for sharing your thoughts with me today. Thank you. It's my pleasure. You write about the sexual revolution. Could you explain to us what that is? Good question. Yeah, I do it a little differently than other people. I mean, most people, when you talk about the sexual revolution, uh, they think of it as a kind of a cultural revolution. They, you know, they're going back to the late 1960s, starting with, you know, hippies uh, in mud at Woodstock, um, you know, free love, um, this sort of thing. And then, uh, you know, radical feminism, of course, and, uh, and then um, radical... Uh, homosexual politics and more recently transgender politics, but also things even among, you know, heterosexuals as well. Um, my particular interest, since my training is in politics and political science, I'm more, I'm interested specifically in the government policies that have resulted from it. And in many ways, it's not just a cultural revolution, it's also a political revolution too. Uh, there are some affinities. Uh, if you look at back at the great revolutions of modern history, um, the Russian Revolution, before that the French Revolution, uh, before that the English Revolution, even a little bit the American Revolution. Uh, there was always on the fringes, there was always a kind of element of cultural radicalism, usually feminists. And so they were always present in all of these kind of radical, uh, radical political upheavals, but they were never the main part of it. But now, in many ways, they're starting, I suppose, in the 60s in, in California, uh, with the sexual revolution, it's the radical sexual, sexual radicals that have become the, you know, the kind of day, it's their day, their day in the sun. They've become kind of mainstream, uh, and they've managed to enact some pretty radical government policies. So how, how has this affected our culture, would you say? How, how do we feel that in, in the, the lives of our children? Well, that's a good question. It's a big question. Uh, I think generally we are all very, um, tolerant very um, permissive about sexual experimentation, uh, mm -hmm. about sexual uh, freedom uh, in ways that we were not prior to the 1970s, late 60s. Mm -hmm. Of course, we're seeing even all the way through, we've seen limitations on that permissiveness. As we see today with, um, you know, a lot of people are pushing back on transgender politics and on homosexualist politics. But uh, even today, we've been much more permissive about things like, you know, feminist politics and extramarital sex and, um, you know, uh, uh, these sorts of things. So we are even even in the mainstream, even conservative people have been, uh, if you like, acculturated to sexual freedom and sexual experimentation. One of my uh, favorite examples of that, and that's a subject of which I write about a lot, is the 
advent of no-fault divorce in the late 60s and into the 70s. And the way that was passed legislatively in first in California, then in many American, almost all American states, and then later in, in, uh, in Western Europe, Canada, throughout the Western world, with very little, uh, virtually zero discussion, very, very little, uh, uh, you know, discussion at all about the, uh, mm-hmm. and, and we just, you know, we, I think part of that is attributable to people misunderstanding it, not really understanding what's going on, but also, uh, you know, people having a more generally being acculturated to greater permissiveness and tolerance of this, mm-hmm. you know, radical experimentation. And what were the discussions they should have had? Oh, that's a big one. Um, well, uh, a number of them, we are specifically on no-fault divorce. Well, uh, you know, in many ways, uh, what it did was it, uh, Maggie Gallagher called it the abolition of marriage. And it, it was nothing less than that. It's, it, did, it abolished marriage as a legally enforceable contract. Many people were misunderstood it. Uh, Ronald Reagan misunderstood it when he signed the first uh, bill in California in 1969. Uh, many state legislatures in the United States, and I think in Western Europe, misunderstood it. They were told that they were it was legislation to provide for divorce by mutual consent. In other words, if both parties agreed, okay. and then there would be a divorce, and you know, without any grounds or fault uh, being required. Yeah. But this was not what it was. It was it was very much unilateral divorce. Um, and it was very much involuntary divorce. People, one party could be divorced involuntarily, unilaterally, without their consent. So before this, just so that we're clear on that, then no-fault divorce just made, so before you needed to, um, you needed to fill a couple of criterias, right, to, to get a divorce. And then they eradicated That's that. That's right. I mean, in some ways, uh, you know, the no-fault divorce bills in the 70s really in many ways just uh, codified what was already happening. So it, it didn't happen mm. immediately in California in 1969, but it had been going on for some time. But it it accelerated the process uh, so that it was, mm. you know, it, and the floodgates, the divorce became just, just absolutely rampant after that. The other thing that uh, about it, as you say, what discussions should have been had, uh, and this is very, very little uh, discussion, virtually zero, discussion about this. Even the critics of no-fault divorce are very critical of the, you know, the way that it opened divorce up, that made divorce more um, permissive, and the the way it ruined a lot of people's lives, frankly. But what has not been at all acknowledged, and what I have been emphasizing in my work, is that it radically changed the law. It changed the English common law, which throughout the Anglophone world, and later on in other countries as well, Previously, according to an old precept in the English common law, you couldn't be hauled into court and issued with uh, injunctions or punishments unless you had done something legally wrong, right? Uh, or at least were, were accused of doing something legally wrong. In other words, legally innocent people were not were supposed to be had a legal right to be left alone in their own home, it, you know, minding their own business. But with no-fault divorce laws, really the whole concept of no-fault justice is a contradiction in terms. It's an oxymoron because it meant for the first time that legally innocent people could be summoned to court and punished for things that are not illegal. They could be punished for doing things that were perfectly legal uh, according to the law. And they could be issued with with, uh, uh, directives and orders and, in effect, punishments, you know, controls on their lives, including the 
the most intimate details of their private lives, even though they were completely innocent legal. And this has had a profound effect on the American judiciary, the English judiciary, Canadian, and I think I think uh, in uh, European countries as well. So the forces behind the, the, uh, the ones who pushed for the no-fault divorce laws, what were their justifications, their arguments? Did they see a lot of women suffering? Because that, because that's what I've heard that before this, they women were suffering, and this was this was saving them. Well, that's that's a good, very good question because it's not well known. You know, who brought in these laws? There's no debate, no discussion. Where did they come from? Um, many at the time, many lawyers were opposed, and, and many judges were opposed. Judges, there was judges who said, "This is this is nothing to trouble." Um, and we're, we're going to pay for this down the road, and we have. So it, I don't think it was the judiciary. Now, the judiciary ended up making a lot of money off it, huge amounts of money, a windfall for the judiciary and the courts, the lawyers, judges, psychotherapists. Mm -hmm. I mean, all these people made a windfall of profit on it. But I don't think they were the ones that pushed it. The, the people who pushed it were the radical feminists. And as you say, this was the argument they made about women's equality. Uh, it's not well known, but the... Uh, the women's bar associations were drafting these laws back in the 1940s. They couldn't get them through. They got them through in the 60s, 70s, because I think nobody was paying attention. Uh, nobody was discussing mm -hmm. it. As I say, people were acculturated to sexual experimentation and permissiveness. Uh, and it was the feminists who were pushing. And you look today in the global south, they're pushing these laws in places like Africa, South America, where they don't exist. And you're right. Yes, they, they were pushed in the name of women's equality. And yet, oddly enough, ironically, once the laws get through, then they claim that divorce hurts nobody so much as it hurts women. That divorce is, is you know, women are the ones who suffer uh, because they are no longer married. So uh, it's a it's a very much a sleight of hand. There's, I, I think there's no there's no uh, real justification. There's no real uh, validity to the claim that divorce uh, provide is necessary to provide equality. I mean, if if uh, you know if if a husband or a wife, anybody, spouse is for example, physically violent, uh, that's always been grounds for divorce for generations, decades, centuries. Um, you can get a divorce on those grounds. So it was never, it was never, and, and what's the point? If, if it's about, if it's about violence or domestic violence or whatever, why does it have to be no fault? It doesn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. uh, no fault, it means that you can be uh, divorced even if you are completely legally innocent. And when I say that, I mean, not only innocent of criminal wrongdoing, but innocent of any civil, even even innocent of, you know, even if you've been completely faithful to your marital vows, your marital contract, you know, you can still be, uh, in other words, if you are faultless legally, you can be still be divorced. So that argument uh, doesn't doesn't mean anything. Um, it's, it's a very spurious argument. Uh, but it, it, it is consistent with the radical feminist doctrine that they were pushing Especially, you don't hear so much about it nowadays, but you certainly heard a lot about it in the early days of the feminist movement. That their aim was to destroy the family. They wanted to destroy the mm -hmm. marriage. They wanted to destroy the patriarchal family. They were very forthright, open, above board about this. They're very clear that the aim was to destroy the marriage institution and to destroy the, the family, the patriarchal family. And uh, that's precisely what they did. They succeeded in it. And I think that's the most mm -hmm. serious both cultural and legal and political consequence of the sexual revolution. The rest of it is is cultural, it's important, it's, I wouldn't dismiss it by any means, but politically and statutorily in terms of the law, 
uh, and the judiciary, uh, that's the single most important, uh, most important consequence of it. Mm-hmm. Okay. How, how difficult was it before this came along to get a divorce? Well, it was, it was getting increasingly easy. It wasn't that difficult. You're, they, they marshaled horror stories about couples uh, fabricating uh, adultery, fabricating. Um, right. So I'm just thinking of what we see in the in the movies, right? The wives had problems uh, getting evidence, and they were trying to spy on their husbands because they needed evidence, and that was just so hard to come by. So that's what you you're being right, told. Right. This is largely largely fiction. I mean, after all, if a, if you don't have evidence of so, if somebody's done something wrong, then, then you don't have a case. I mean, you either have evidence mm-hmm. or, you, or you don't. And this was not a serious problem. In fact, you heard stories about couples staging. Uh, adulterous affairs which hadn't taken place just so they could get a divorce. And this is mythology. Mm-hmm. This, is, this is nonsense. The, what the feminists wanted was the ability to unilaterally divorce and to take the children with them. That's, that was what was critical. It wasn't just the, the right to divorce, which people already had. They wanted the ability to take children and raise them without fathers, even if the father was legally guiltless, uh, legally innocent. And that's what they've done. I mean, if you see the explosion of fatherless children, first in the African-American community, uh, mm-hmm. and that was the result, not so much of divorce, but more of first of the welfare system. And that's why in the in the lower income communities, in the African-American, uh, Indian, American Indian, uh, uh, ethnic communities, low income communities, that's where this fatherlessness epidemic started, largely because of the welfare system. And then mm-hmm. the, the machinery of the welfare system spread to the middle class. Uh, because of divorce in the 1970s, starting in the 1970s, and uh, then it's it's increasingly uh, you know, taken off. A famous um, sociologist, political figure in the 1960s, Daniel Moynihan, warned in 1965 when he looked at the African American family. He said, "You know, today we see what something like that. 25 percent of in those days of black families were without fathers." And he said, "This is a crisis." Prices twenty five mm-hmm. black families mm-hmm. today. It's about I think it's like sixty percent of black families or more, seventy percent maybe, and mm-hmm. it's about twenty five percent of families overall. So the mm-hmm. situation is much worse today than it was in nineteen sixty five, when Moynihan issued this this report of all of the social pathologies and dangers and social economy that right. result from fatherless homes, and it's only gotten worse since then. Mm-hmm. So parents who are are divorced and fathers don't have custody. Well, when we say fatherlessness, what are the criteria right. for that? Um, oftentimes, it's yeah, yeah, uh, welfare families or or divorced families where the father uh, either is cut off and has no access to the children, which is quite common, or mm-hmm. the father has uh, you know maybe maybe occasional visitation with the children, but no authority. He, he might even have generous visitation. He might, you know, see the children 50% of the time. But if he has no authority over the children, if he has no ability to make decisions and raise the children, then it doesn't mean very much because he, he doesn't have any, uh, he can't, um, you know, he can't control the children and raise them the way, uh, they, you know, with any authority. So, um, you know, it, there's varying degrees of this. And some families who simply have very uh, weakened fathers or weak fathers, sometimes even an attack family. Or, but the worst situation seems to be where you have huge communities where there are simply no fathers. Uh, in the African American communities, for example, in the inner cities of the United States, yeah, the problem in, there. in the Indian yeah. reservations, Native American reservations, uh, you see this. 
and you see this in in middle class white suburbs too nowadays. Here and also in Scandinavia, they're getting a lot better at doing the 50-50 split and custody battles that the father does get a say. But you you said before, even when fathers have uh, 50% custody, then that counts as, as as fatherlessness? Or just so I understand? Well, it depends, of course. Uh, in some cases, yeah, in some cases they will have, uh, as you say, I'm told this is quite common in Scandinavia, where they will have full 50% custody and 50%, you know, legal custody also, meaning they can, you know, make decisions. So it depends. Mm -hmm. In those circumstances where the couple is very cooperative and they are able to make decisions easily. But in some cases, you know, the mm -hmm. father might have 50% physical custody. He's allowed to see the children 50% of the time, but he has no authority. And anytime they disagree, you have to go to court and the judge decides it sides yeah. with the mother. Now, the mother may be the better parent, but she may not. But, uh, you know, in any case, uh, you know, what the children see is conflict, division, a father who's been marginalized, who has no authority, who's been basically uh, emasculated. In fact, that is what, the, what mm -hmm. the children see in those circumstances. In some circumstances, you see uh, what is referred to as parental alienation, where the father, sometimes the mother, more often the father, is alienated. He, the, the children are told bad things about the father. You know, they're turned against him. The, their, their, uh, their minds are poisoned against the father, sometimes against the mother, it does happen. But in any case, regardless of what it is, what the children see, they don't see unified parental authority, they don't see love, they don't see cooperation, uh, they see a situation of conflict, antagonism, rivalry, yeah. and uh, yeah. you know, they, they don't see a functional family and they don't understand what a functional family is or how to form a functional family of their own. So, yeah. uh, you know, it's very dysfunctional. Yeah, no, it's a tra it's a tragedy. It's really a tragedy. What's happening to the to to families? Can you say something about the numbers we're seeing in in Europe, in Western in Western Europe? Do you know anything well, about it's, that? Well, it's growing in Western Europe, like everything else. I my field, my professional field, is comparative politics. I teach comparative politics, and we have a saying. A European, I know this from Europeans in my field. They have a saying: if it if it appears in America, it will sooner or later appear here. If it appears right. in America, first it will spread to Britain. <laughs> and then it'll go to, to, yeah. to Europe. So, you know, whether it's Coca-Cola, premarital sex, yeah. divorce, whatever it is, it starts in America, starts in California, yeah. spreads throughout America, it goes to Britain from there and, and Canada, and then it goes to, right. uh, to the rest of Europe. And that's, that's basically what we're seeing. And now some, some European countries do seem to be able to handle it uh, better than most. Mm -hmm. Like you say, Scandinavia seems to have an ideological commitment to gender equality in a lot of countries like the United States. You know, the feminists talk about gender equality, but, uh, you know, when push comes to shove, they think the mother should have sole and uncontested custody and the father should be should be removed. I don't know. If right. So what are the consequences? Fatherlessness is, is one of But why should why should we care about that? Because so many people say, uh, OK, so what people divorce, you know, that's their choice. It's their right. Well, it's it's uh, yeah, it's the single biggest cause of virtually every social pathology. I mean, we, we should have learned that by now in America. Um, you know, the, if you look at the black ghettos, the Indian reservations, I mean, they're, they're poor, they're dysfunctional. They're ridden with crime, drugs, derelicts, prostitution. Mm -hmm. Um, and you look at, you know, you look at Europe, uh, like I say, the bon the immigrant communities of, of Marseille uh, and the Bonlieu, the of Paris, or the north of England, um, you see the same kind of communities, uh, you know, uh, fatherless communities. So it's, it's, it's going to come. 
And, uh, you know, I think it's my belief that we've been paying for this in, in the United States. We've been paying for this for the last three years. Uh, this is what has given us the Biden administration. It's what gave us Black Lives Matter. It's what gave us Antifa. It's what gave us people like Kamala Harris. You look at her career or um, what's her name of the mayor of um, Chicago or the mayor of Washington. Uh, these women worked their way up through the welfare state, radical women worked their way up through the welfare state. They became prosecutors often in the corrupt American judiciary. Now they hold high positions like Kamala Harris as vice president of the United States. She, yeah. her career, look at it. They, they, they came through the, yeah. the, the fatherless community, welfare communities of, of America. And so if you want Kamala Harris as your next president, uh, then, uh, you know, keep going off the line. Okay. And we see the same consequences in, in Europe with, with the children of divorce and the, the scars that, that they carry with them. Yep. Can you say something yeah, about that? Yeah, we do. I have the impression that the, you know, in Europe, the, the divorce system is, for a number of reasons, uh, it is less, it has been less, uh, high conflict. Uh, Europeans have often seemed to be able to make divorce more amicable for a number of reasons. And that's, that's good if it has to happen. Um, the, the reason for that, I can tell you what the reason for that is the Americans have a very, very punitive, predatory system of child support, which children mm -hmm. in cash prizes and yeah. it makes divorce extremely acrimonious and deadly predatory the canadians have the same system it's horrible in canada the british have so far avoided that and the europeans have avoided that so that's you know that's good so it's happening the, the yeah. consequences are less harsh more gradual in europe um but it's coming it'll happen eventually it'll happen and you can still yeah. you know it's still in the early stages you can you can cut it off but, you know, I think you've got to, you know, recover your institutions, control immigration, rejuvenate the churches, give them uh, synagogues, mosques, give them uh, confidence to, to be to be proactive politically. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What happened to the Europeans becoming so docile? We used to have revolutions every other weekend. Yeah, exactly. This is very strange. The Europeans have followed the Americans. So they do it on the left. They do it on the right. Uh, yeah, it's amazing. I mean, the Europeans used to be more revolutionary. The Americans were known for being, you know, kind of moderates and all the, you know, the English mm -hmm. also were known for being, you know, always middle of the road, not much extremes of left and right. We didn't have much communism in America or Britain. Um, you know, the Europeans are more volatile. They have these revolutions all over the place. Um, yeah. but, uh, yeah. Did we just lose our, our appetite after the world wars? No, yeah, I, I think your own welfare states have done that. You, you need to think about that. The European welfare state is more benign. The European welfare states are not as destructive as the American one because you know, it's more of a middle class institution. It's kind of an insurance policy. It's more of a, you know, it's not, the American made the welfare system limited to the poor and it really created ghettos. It created a very, uh, volatile situation among the poor and minorities. So the European welfare system is more benign and more stable, but it's not uh, immune. Uh, I think the European welfare system will eventually create the same problems as the American welfare system. And, you know, it, it just makes the Europeans too, uh, too comfy and too cushy. You know, they want to enjoy their welfare. They don't want to pay for their own defense. You know, this gives the Americans control over foreign policy. 
You know, it's why the Americans are calling the shots in Ukraine. Whether you agree with the Ukraine policy or disagree with the war in Ukraine, it's the Americans that did it. The Europeans have just been followers. And, uh, you know, the, the divorce and the no-fault divorce and the, and the welfare problems, these don't get as much attention as, uh, as the, you know, homosexual, homosexualism and transgenderism. I, I fault the, uh, the family groups for this. So, you know, in the United States, we have these groups that claim to speak for the family, Family Research Council, mm -hmm. Alliance Defending Freedom, American Center for Law and Justice. Uh, and many of these groups now work, uh, in Europe. They have branches in Europe. And, uh, they've been, for years, they've been claiming to defend the family in the courts, and they're always at the forefront. They're always doing battle with the, um, with the homosexualists and with the transgenderists, but they do absolutely nothing about divorce. Absolutely zero about divorce, about custody, about the, the breakup of, and these are the really dangerous things. I mean, the welfare system and the divorce system has broken up more families than, uh, homosexuals ever have or transgenderists ever have. Um, I'm not saying these things are completely uh, harmless, but, uh, you know, heterosexual divorce is a far more, uh, dangerous, destructive force. Uh, than homosexuality is. And yet the groups with names like Focus on the Family or the Family, they claim to defend the family. And yet, what's the number one threat to the family? It's it's divorce. And, and these groups do absolutely nothing about it. And uh, so I fault these groups. I think they're they're very culpable uh, what they're doing. They accept donations from people and yet they do nothing. And, and they're doing and the same is happening in Europe. Uh, you know, you, you see them operating here in Eastern Europe. They do, they fight in the European Court of Human Rights. They contest, mm -hmm. uh, you know, religious freedom. They contest homosexualism, transgenderism, the schools, the indoctrination of children in schools, the sexualization of children in schools. They, they fight all of these things. They, they do it fairly well, but they never, they never say a word about divorce or welfare or the breakup of families. It's, and it's not surprising that it spreads. I don't see so much of that fight here. And I, to, um, to be honest, I think it's just so, it all comes so slowly and then it's, it's suddenly upon us. And I stand here thinking, okay, who, who, who are going to speak out against these things? So what you were just saying now, transgender, uh, homosexual marriage, it all just passed like that with a landslide. At least in the U.S., you have sort of these two groups who are fighting it out and it's a almost 50 50 split always. But here in Europe, I have the impression that it's that it's very different. Could you say something about that? It's it's starting. It, it, you're right. I mean, some of it is going through without much much contest. I, I know there there have been uh, there are cases. There is resistance here in Hungary. You've probably heard about that, yeah, and yeah. Uh, in Poland also under the uh, you know the, the uh, Law and Justice Party, the PIS in Poland, and they have mm -hmm. they have resistance these sorts of things. And there's been some here in Romania, less less active, less well organized. Uh, but it's it still happens, and in, in elsewhere in Eastern Europe, Slovakia and the Czech Republic. Yeah, but in Western Europe, it's it's very, very, very much much less. So yes, there are groups. There are groups there. They're, they tend to be modeled on the American groups. Um, mm -hmm. the the uh, you know the the uh, Alliance Defending Freedom is an originally an American group that now has many branches throughout Europe. Uh, the European Center for Law and Justice is modeled on the American Center for Law and Justice, and some of these groups do some some good work, but. Uh, and, and they've, you know, there are cases in the, in the, in the, um, European Court of Human Rights, there have been quite a few cases. Uh, and, uh, oftentimes they involve Eastern Europe because in Eastern Europe there is more opposition and more, um, you know, more pushback. Um, so, you know, there is some of this, but 
Unfortunately, they tend to focus on the flashy cases, the big high profile media cases involving homosexuality or transgenderism or you know, these sorts of things. Fine, mm -hmm. but they don't focus on the things that are under the radar screen. They don't focus on what, which are oftentimes much more destructive, like the, you know, the no-fault divorce system, which is just uh, is outrageous that, you know, it, it debases not only marriage, it debases the legal system in a functioning democracy. In fact, you know, if you look at it today, you look at what they're doing in the United States to someone like uh, Donald Trump, the lawfare mm -hmm. campaigns, the use of the law to criminalize innocent people. For example, over the January 6th demonstrations in Washington for Donald Trump or his supporters or parents who speak at school board meetings, um, you know, using the legal system to uh, criminalize innocent citizens for political reasons. I mean, this is this is what has happened over the last three plus years in the United States. It's been happening in Britain also. Well, I can tell you why. Why, did, why is this happening? Where did it come from? I can tell you where it's happening. It started through the divorce system. The divorce courts pioneered this. They were the first ones to start using uh, legal methods to punish legally innocent citizens. And how can that spread through, I mean, we have a very different legal system. I think it's been spreading faster in the English-speaking countries. The English-speaking countries have the common mm -hmm. law system. The common law system gives a lot of power and leeway to judges. Uh, the judges use that power. They abuse that power. Uh, they, you can see it in the family law system, but now you can see it in other, other areas of the law too. The American, Canadian, British, I should say English, really, English and Welsh, Australian, New Zealand, the courts of these countries are out of control. They have no, 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 uh, you know, no controls on them. And the judges have enormous leeway. They are very strongly politicized and they use their positions in the courts for, to issue rulings that have political, um, political consequences. But having said that, the growth of judicial power, judicial, growth of political power among the judiciary, is not limited to the English-speaking countries. It's growing all over the world. Um, you can see it in France. You can see it in Italy. Uh, I've been told it's taking place in Israel, which is kind of an Anglophone country. Uh, a judge in America, what was his name? Bork wrote, wrote a, a book a few years ago, The Worldwide Rule of Judges. He considered a half a dozen countries, including Israel. And, but even that, it was a, he only scratched the surface. You could Nowadays, you could go to other countries. Um, so the power of the judiciary is growing everywhere. You can see it in Europe. You can see it in the European mm -hmm. Court of Human Rights. You can see it in the European Court of Justice. Uh, you can see it in the international tribunals, the International Criminal Tribunal in Yugoslavia, for example, in the 1990s. Uh, judicial power is growing everywhere, uh, political power, mm -hmm. and it's, it's being abused. So um, it's, a, it's a trend that needs to be watched more carefully than we are watching it. Everyone, everywhere, I think, needs to look at it carefully. Uh, and it started in family law. Um, it's happening in Poland, for example, a big part of the disputes between the PIS, the Law and Justice Party in Poland, and the previous government, the uh, center-right party that was running Poland and, and they're opposing the PIS. Uh, a lot of that centered on the judiciary, who controlled the judicial appointments, who controlled the judgeships, both sides mm -hmm. claiming the judges were um, you know, use, using their power for improperly. Probably both sides right, uh, 
you know, justifiably to some extent. Mm -hmm. uh, so, um, yeah, the the, the 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 break of the family, the, the you know, the 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 state's invasion of the family, uh, the spearhead of that invasion, the vanguard of that invasion is is usually the judiciary. Now I always hear that there's this dangerous rise of right-wing politics in in Europe. Yeah, you you mentioned so Italy, Spain, France, uh, Hungary. How how dangerous is it really? Why is it happening? What is happening? Well, you can look at the parties that exist. Uh, you know, the main ones have been uh, the main attention has been Hungary recently, and before that, uh, the Polish party. Um, you know, these are uh, conservative parties. Uh, you know, they're, they're labeled far far right, extreme right. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't see anything you know particularly extreme about any of them. And the things that they stand for are the things that um, you know were unexceptionable. You know, the the center left things that the center left parties. If you look at the you know the Democratic Party of Ken John Kennedy or the old labor old labor before Tony Blair. Uh, you know, these were the same things that you would have found in in those countries. Uh, you know, political, even in, in socialist Britain in the 1970s under mm -hmm. Harold Wilson, you would have found, you know, political radicalism coupled with social conservatism. Um, you know, there's, there's nothing exceptional about this. I mean, you, Marie, you know, the, the Marie Le Pen's, the Marine Le Pen's uh, uh, party in France, yes, her, her father uh, started that party. I think he did have some, frankly, racially yeah, but they said they've they've uh, grappled with that. They've said that was that was bad, and this is now the new party, and they've really said. And a lot of these yeah. people, you, if you look for the support of those parties, where does it come from? The, 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 these parties on the on the right wing. A lot of those people are old lefties, old working class people who supported the you know the British Labour Party or the French Communist Party. Um, they were in the old days. They were they were left wingers. They feel disenfranchised. They've been cut out. The Marxism has become unfashionable. The Soviet Union collapsed. Communism is unfashionable. You know, you get this identity politics on the left of race and sexuality. And the old left, the old working class left, what have they done? They've gone to the right. Uh, and they've taken up the, you know, the politics of the, of the National Front. What do they call it? They have a new name now in France. And the Italian, the new Italian parties, several of them, and the AUF and, uh, ADF in Germany, and here in Romania, we have a party called Our. They frankly don't do very much, uh, but they're you know they have similar kind of uh, you know they're very patriotic. They believe in the you know the nation state. Uh, I mean to call them fascists or it's just is just ludicrous. Um, yeah. yeah, but in spite of uh, this dangerous rise of the right wing you, you you don't really see any any change i mean as a, a conservative mother I, I i really feel the lack of support and i think and i feel issues just sort of their past without uh, without anyone uh, contesting them and then i say okay where where is this rise in the right wing so what's mm -hmm. happening that's a very good point uh that's a very important point yeah all this uh this right wing uh Agitation, pro, you know, nationalistic, patriotic, um, pro family, pro create all, you know, they all claim to be Christian or, you know, uh, religious. They all claim to be pro family, basic family values. Um, uh, and yet, as you say, how much of this is felt in the daily lives of, uh, of the people of Europe and how much difference have they really been made? They haven't. 
Uh, and this is an important point. I mean, you raised something very important here. And I would, frankly, uh, here's what I would say. Most of the parties, most of the organizations that you see on the right in Europe, they are modeled on American organizations and American parties. They, the Americans right wing has a lot of influence here in Europe. They've been working here in Europe. Some of them are great people. I, you know, some of them, but some of them are, you know, frankly, the, they've lost. I mean, the Americans, have been, the, the American conservatives have been defeated and humiliated. Look, look at what's really? been going on in the United States for the last you know, half years. Mm -hmm. You have a government of the far left. You have a, you know, a, the Democratic Party has gone off the rails as far as, so the conservative side, not just the Republican Party, I don't know that, but the, the conservative organizations, the broad, you know, conservative groups, they have been, they have failed. They have been defeated. They have been humiliated. And uh, they have shown no contrition for it. They have shown no acknowledgement that they have lost and been failed. They have shown no desire to learn from their mistakes. And yet, and I fear for the European groups imitating the Americans, taking their cues from the Amer I'm talking about conservatives here. Conservative groups in Europe taking their instructions and their guidance and their belief from the Americans. I think it's a serious mistake. The American conservative groups have lost. Yeah. And the Europeans, in many ways, the Poles and the Hungarians, the Romanians, are ahead of the Americans. They're, they're more effective. And they should not slavishly follow the Americans. They should, you know, they're, yeah. they're, the Americans, they, they have some things to learn from the Americans. The Americans do, the American groups do have some sophisticated techniques in their work listening to, but they should not, uh, Europeans should not slavishly follow the American. I say this as an American, as a, as a loyal American, yeah. uh, but also as a resident of Europe, the, 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 you should not take your cue. Why? What's different? And what should they be doing? Uh, well, they should be addressing some of these, these issues that they've neglected for decades now. And this is the thing I, I mentioned, we've talked about no-fault divorce. Yeah. Uh, this is one of them. Uh, they should be uh, looking at this. Uh, we've talked, we could talk more about the judiciary. We've talked about the civil judiciary in America. Look at the criminal judiciary. It is a, one of the most dirty, filthy criminal judiciaries on earth. The American judiciary is notorious for jailing, incarcerating innocent people, people they know to be innocent, for um, extorting people into plea bargains, for fabricating evidence, mm -hmm. for suppressing evidence. Innocence. Mm -hmm. uh, this the American criminal justice system is completely filthy. Okay, so so um, uh, so the European conservatives. What can we do? Um, don't be afraid. Look at the look at the uh, you know the trends at what's going on. I think I think uh, you do need Europeans do need to organize better. Um, they need to organize groups. They need to push um, the parties uh, that claim to be. Um, you know, pro-Christian, pro-family, pro-national, um, scrutinize what they do. Just to give you an example, the PIS party in Poland, you know, they've been claiming for years that they are a party of the family. And yet some of their policies are just ludicrous, the part pushing, you know, paying people to have children, paying money to families to have children. This isn't going to uh, make any difference. The French have tried it. It didn't work. Yeah, it's not a financial. It's not. You, you don't. People don't have children because you pay the money to do it. It's rather the the other way around. Like the richer we are, the the fewer kids we have. Right, right. And I, I think I think you need to take on issues like um, you know, like like divorce, like you know, watch out for these trends and um, 
you know, uh, push groups like the uh, AFD and the PIS in Poland, the AFD in Germany, uh, the, um, you know, the, the um, what's it called, Fidesz, Fidesz in Hungary and Auer here in Romania, and, uh, you know, get them to speak out. They're, they're too diffident. They're too, if anything, they're too uh, quiet, uh, too diffident. Um, the party here in Romania, the AUR party, which means gold, uh, they won't speak out against things because they, they're afraid, they're afraid of being called pro-Russian or they're afraid of being uh, aligned with uh, Viktor Orban in Hungary. Um, the parties, they're too, don't, don't be afraid. You need to speak out. Uh, Orban has been, uh, outspoken. Uh, I think you could be even more outspoken. Um, uh, yeah. and don't, you know, don't let them, don't let them intimidate you. They are getting, uh, they are really, they have a lot of support in the polls, it seems, especially in, in France and Scandinavia, also here, the conservative parties, but it doesn't translate to political power, it seems. Yeah, it does. What's happening well, there? Well, there's a number of things. One of the things is what I call the, the Iron Law of Washington. But it, it could be the Iron Law of Brussels or the Iron Law of, uh, you know, of, of, uh, of Berlin or the Iron Law of Paris. Um, people who are paid to do solve a problem, develop a vested interest in perpetuating the problem they're supposed to be solving. Um, okay. you know, and that's true of anybody. It's not, it's whether you're a functionary or a, on the left or on the right, or a judge or a lawyer or a journalist or a professor. Uh, if you're paid to deal with something, then you are paid to prolong and exacerbate the problem, not to solve it. And there's no substitute for citizens unpaid citizens, amateur citizens, to form their own organizations. One thing I would argue um, is the big thing that could be done is resuscitate the churches. This is the one thing the Americans did well, and the British did well for many years. The Americans were created by church. America was created by churches, dissident churches, churches that were uh, dis dissenting churches in England, a revolution in the 17th century. They didn't just descend from, from ecclesiastical religious policy. They also descended from secular policy. They were militant. They fought a revolution in England, which overthrew the king, the monarchy. They, they migrated to America and they created little communities of participatory democracy based on church membership. Many years into the churches that ran civic life in America and in Britain, also Britain as well. And, um, yeah. these church, unfortunately today, these churches have been eclipsed. They've been supplanted by pressure groups, pressure groups on the left mm -hmm. and the pressure groups on the right. Uh, they've been supplanted mm -hmm. by law firms. They've been supplanted by, um, think tanks and media and the churches lost their yeah. nerve. They've lost their spine. They've lost their, but it was the churches that organized the citizens to speak out, and you still have that in Europe. You still have Catholic churches in Central Europe, Orthodox churches in Eastern Europe, all kinds of churches, evangelical churches in, in Switzerland, had Catholic churches. Mm -hmm. uh, you did it. I mean, look at Geneva. Look at, you know, uh, you know the, the, yeah. the, the Protestants pioneered this. The Protestants pioneered this in, yeah. in, uh, in, in Switzerland, in the Netherlands, in Scotland, and in England. And in America, but they don't no longer have monopoly on 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 marriage and divorce. So that's what are they, what are they supposed they to do? They don't have the monopoly. They don't run the they don't run the governments anymore. 
but they are still voices of op they still could be voices of opposition voices of citizen opposition voices of dissent and they could they could uh they could stand up for the family look at this for example take the scenario yeah. imagine you are in america or britain or western europe you're married in a church in a church wedding mm -hmm. right it's consecrated before god it's consecrated in the 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 congregation the parishioners are witnesses to that marriage okay now mm -hmm. imagine your spouse then runs runs away runs runs off with someone else okay collateral divorce mm -hmm. and you go to the priest or the pastor and you say you married us in your church my wife or husband mm -hmm. has just run off with the milkman mm -hmm. what are you going to do about it and the pastor says well sorry i don't know i'll, I'll say a prayer yeah. for you maybe i can help you find a, a lawyer what if the pastor said Instead of said the priest or the pastor said, we're going to court. We're going to take, we're going to go in court and we're going to demand standing to suit. We, the church has standing because we consecrated this wedding. We consecrated this marriage. We have a stake. We have vested interest in the integrity of this household. We're going to go into that courtroom and we as a church with all of our parishioners and members are going to tell this judge, you know, we want justice done. This is the Bible talk. Right. Or what if what if someone comes? What if the Child Protective Services come and they don't like your because you are a uh, you know you're a Christian family and you want to raise your homeschool your children or you want to raise your children according to the Bible? The mm -hmm. Child Protective Services come in like they do in Norway or Sweden and they say we're going to take your children away because you're guilty of child abuse. And you say, why am I guilty of child abuse? And you say, because you're raising your children according to these authoritarian values, and you know, we're gonna take your children and raise them as atheists and transgender. Mm -hmm. Okay. What if you were married in a church? What if that pastor or priest of that church stepped in and said to the child protective services, You can't do this? And my my church says you can't do this, my parishioners say you can't do this, my parent church is behind us, God is behind us. Okay, we're all gonna fight this, not just us, not just the parents. Not just me, but the whole church is in there fighting this battle to protect these parents and their children. Whether horse parents mm -hmm. or attack parents, the church is there. What if they did that? People would see the churches as something important, as something, a community, a civic organization of importance, and they would have an incentive to marry under the authority of the church, knowing that if the government came along and tried to take their children, or tried to dissolve your marriage, or tried to put you in prison, that the church would go in there into the court and demand justice on your behalf. Mm -hmm. Why couldn't churches do? They used to do this. Why can't they do this now? Yeah, they used to also hold hold men accountable who cheated, and the whole community would come together and really hold him accountable and uh, force mm -hmm. him out. If that was, I've seen this in in Gibraltar, still a very conservative uh, society. You, uh, you're assuming that the churches and the religious, uh, also synagogues, because so, I'm a religious Jew, that they're conservative, and they're not. They're increasingly trying to sort of pander to the leftist, you know, whatever. That's why I don't want them involved. Right in the political or cultural issues because I thought, well, you're definitely not speaking for me. Stop talking about the war in Ukraine. That's my problem. No, with it's that. absolutely true with, with Jews. Uh, same thing with the synagogues. And the Muslims do it. The Muslims kind of thing goes on in Muslim countries. Uh, although even there, their families are in crisis, even in the Muslim countries. But, you know, the churches could be 
and if the church doesn't do it or the synagogue doesn't do it, then you start a new one. Uh, but but my my larger point is if you ask me what you know what can you do in Europe, and uh, you know you mm. still have churches uh, with convictions. I think I think they are a little too diffident, a little too passive, uh, a little they don't. They don't Good yeah, they're also scared and just run by normal people right. and they they just see their uh, congregations drained and they're trying to win them back. And in doing that, I think right. they take the wrong chances. But I think even the conservative churches are too, uh, too you know, um, sheepish, too different, too passive. They right. should be more mm -hmm. proactive. And this is where, you know, the, the, the Orthodox Church here doesn't really have a history of that. The Catholic Church, I think, does to some extent, um, but, but this is one thing I think you can learn from the from the Americans and the Protestants, because the Protestants did kind of pioneer this at one time, even though they've they've lost it. Um, but you know, this kind of this style of churchmanship, this style of proactive activism, church activism on behalf of certain you know civil issues which are in the turf, or you know, under the the legitimate authority of the church, like marriage, the family, um, you know, I think churches, synagogues, uh, mosques are perfectly within their rights to, you know, to stand up and, and to become politically, uh, you know, politically active. I'm not, I'm not advocating a theocracy by any means. I'm just saying they can be, the Roman, actually, Romanians did this a few years, Romanians, I, I tend to fault the Romanians for being too passive and, um, you know, too politically uh, you know, acquiescent. But a few years ago, a Romanian family in Norway lost their children to uh, to the Child Protective Services because they were Christians. Norwegian uh, Protective Services confiscated their children. And Nor Romanians all over the world, in mostly in the diaspora, Romanians in, in, the, in Washington, London, Paris, in the capitals of Europe and the West, well-educated, affluent, you know, wealthy Romanians. Um, they were out there in the embassies in the embassies protesting this, and eventually the Norwegian social workers had to give the children back. Again, I'm not saying we should have a theocracy, but I'm mm -hmm. saying we should, you know, they should be, they're perfectly uh, legitimate for churches to take an uh, active interest uh, and uh, strongly. I mean, look at look at this American Civil Rights Movement and then the Vietnam War. Uh, churches took a strong stand in political affairs. Nobody said Martin Luther King was trying to create a theocracy. Churches abolished slavery in England and in America. Um, absolutely nothing wrong with that. What's your prognosis for Western Europe? I, well, I think Western Europe has, still has a lot of uh, hope. I mean, it's very, uh, you know, there's still a lot of people. They're still, you know, cohesive societies. Their cohesion is being undermined by mass immigration, too much immigration, uncontrolled immigration. They've got to, they've got to mm -hmm. you know, put a, put a halt to that. And they've got to, you know, a lot of immigrants are uh, constructive. A lot of immigrants, places like, you know, I know in Britain and a lot of parts of Europe, the immigrants from Africa or the Caribbean or the Muslim countries, they're more conservative, they're more traditional than the, you know, than the native Europeans. So there's nothing wrong with that. But you can't have mass immigration, you know, this, where they're creating ghettos in, in the banlieue of, of Paris and Marseille with, uh, you know, again, young, young fatherless boys. From Muslim families, very similar to the American ghettos. Um, you know, these 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 adolescent boys, fatherless boys, become terrorists in France and in England, uh, just like they become criminals in America. 
So, um, you know, if you've got to control the immigration and you've got to uh, you know, channel the immigration into, uh, into constructive policy. So I think Europe, you know, has got to maintain their cohesiveness of their societies and not forget their, their Christian roots. It's, it's, you know, not just Christian, even if you don't believe in God, okay? These institutions like churches and synagogues and mosques yeah. are so important. They do things that no other institution can do. Law firms can't substitute. Pressure groups can't substitute. Think tanks, there's no substitute. They need to, to recover their, their civic role. So um, our question is obviously, what should I tell my daughter? What would you tell your daughter? about the situation now, about the breakdown of the families, what would you, what's a good message for them, for the next generation of women? Men are in trouble. Men are in serious trouble. You need to remember that. Um, find a good man, help him become a better man, help him become a real man. Don't look down on him, don't despise him. It's not entirely his fault, but he's got to be a, a man and you've got to help him men are in very serious trouble if you look at the black male american african-american male it's been a theme for decades now the emasculation of the black male it's spreading to the white male in america and other european and european countries um, men are in trouble women need to support men if they act like if men seem to act like uh juveniles if they don't seem to want to get married if they wear the same clothes that they wore when they were eight years old um help them Help to elevate them, help to encourage them, rise above that. Get them a good suit of clothes, help them to, you know, to, to take on the masculine responsibilities. Don't, you know, talk about how puerile they are and, and, and assert that you want to be, you know, an independent woman. There's, there's no such thing um, anymore that there's an independent man. Men and women need each other. And it's men that are in trouble. Uh, and, yeah, and this is my other fault with the, the Europe, the American and European pro family groups. They pander to feminists, they pander to women, they romanticize women. You've had Janice Fiamengo on there. She does not romanticize or pander to women. She tells the truth. And, um, yeah. you know, to, to tell your daughter she needs to find a good man and, you know, and help him become a better man. And uh, she won't, uh, you know, she won't regret that. Because that's what women want. They, they don't want, you know. Yeah. But if you look, I used to notice under communists, I used to notice this in the 1990s when I first came to Eastern Europe. I saw men, I saw women for the first time in the 90s, women were able to break free of communism and they were they were beautiful. They dressed very elegantly, nice clothes. The men were wearing boiler suits. They looked like they were going to the factory. You know, because communism did that to the men. It emasculated them. It, it provided, you know, for them. Yeah. It provided, no, you know, it, it did the providing, the protecting. The state did everything that men were supposed to do. So the men had no role under communism. And they, you know, well, if you look at the West 30 years later, this is the way Western men look. They, you know, they dress like little boys. They have, you know, the tattoos, the piercings and all this. I think it's a mistake. I think they need to get out of that. And the women need to help them. That's and it's because of the soft communism, the, you know, the soft totalitarianism, the way men have been emasculated, the way they've been thrown out of their families. They're given no incentive to improve themselves, to, to work, to study, to invest, to marry, to you know, get a home. Mm -hmm. You know, this is what so men need to recover their, their role and women need to help them.
That was well said. Wow, thank you so much. My pleasure.